Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And today we're going to talk to you about a case that is pretty well known, I think, but I was excited to, to give it kind of our spin. So today we're going to talk about Phil Hartman, very well-known comedian, especially with SNL and Simpsons. Trish, were you aware of Phil Hartman? Yeah, I was a big fan of news radio. So he was on okay. that. And of course, SNL, like you said, and The Simpsons. And I mean, he's just funny, funny guy. So were you aware of this when it was happening? Like when the murder happened? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I think it was just so shocking. It was like, what? Like somebody you knew, somebody who was on TV, somebody who generally was a well-liked guy and had really memorable characters that he did to suddenly not be here anymore in such a tragic, tragic event. Like, I do remember when this was unfolding. I do not. I was... <laughs> so I knew this after the Proper. fact, obviously, because I, I was not around when all of this went down. But again, I'm just... Let's get into kind of the details of it. Okay. So Philip Edward Hartman was born on September 24th, 1948 in Brantford, Canada, which was also the hometown of Wayne Gretzky. So fun fact for oh. you. So he was one of eight children of Doris and Rupert Hartman Eight children is a lot of children. It is. <laughs> Anything over one. Anything. <laughs> so Doris was a housewife and Rupert was a salesman and they grew up in a very Catholic family, which explains kind of the eight children. And he was a middle child. So he was number four of eight. And growing up, he said that he felt like he didn't have enough attention really being a middle child. And so he sought it out through comedy, even as a, a young person. When he was around 10 years old, his family relocated to the U.S., living first in Maine, then moving to Connecticut. And in his teens, they completely relocated towards the West coast. So he lived then in the LA area and at his Westchester High School in West LA, he was already known as a class clown. After graduating high school, he attended Santa Monica City College but dropped out in 1969 to be a roadie for the band Rock and Foo. Have you ever heard of this band? I've never heard of Rock and Foo. I'd never heard of this band, but I think it was more the lifestyle that he liked, sort of traveling around California in the 60s into the 70s, the surfer, like beach bum lifestyle. So he always had sort of a knack for art, and he ended up designing some of the group's album covers, posters, all of that type of stuff. And it was around this time that he met his first wife, Gretchen Lewis. They married in 1970, but divorced in 1972. There's not a whole lot of information about their marriage. It just seemed more of a young and in love, and then they sort of just split ways in what they wanted out of life. Being passionate about design in the music world, Philip went back to school for graphic design at the California State University. Using those skills and also a connection through his brother, who was working for the William Morris Talent Agency, Phil began designing album covers for Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Poco and some other bands too. Now- I know them. You know them? Okay, I don't know them. Are there any hits that I would know? You probably would. You don't want to like <laughs> sing me a little something? No, I do not. <laughs> All right, then I'll just look that up. What about Poco? <laughs> do you know who they are? Uh-huh. Okay, maybe I just live under a rock. You do. A rock called Millennialship. <laughs> That's correct, you do. So in 1975, he joined an improv group called The Ground Leans based in Los Angeles. He had been there as a spectator of the show and had been called up as a volunteer. His performance went over so well that they actually offered him a spot in the group. It was through this group that he began working with Paul Rubens, better known as Pee Wee Herman, and John Lovitz. He was actually a co-writer of Pee Wee's Big Adventure in 1985 and made guest appearances on the Pee Wee's Playhouse 
House TV show. I remember that show. I tried to watch it recently because I think it was on Netflix. So I put it on for my daughter and I had never watched it as a kid. And it was really creepy, like just going into it. <laughs> unknowing and expecting this is going to be a normal kid show and i started watching it and it was a little it was a little scary (laughs) lawrence fishburne was also on peewee herman's playhouse now i do like they had the new peewee movie that came out was that peewee's big adventure too i can't remember what it's called but that one was decent i liked that one so in 1982 he married for a second time wedding lisa jarvis now lisa talks about the marriage stating that it was like living with two people an entertainer and also a recluse she said after their first anniversary they knew that the marriage was over and they divorced i believe two years after that but she knew at that point that the marriage wasn't really going to last he continued with the group groundlings and he met bryn omdahl through a blind date now bryn had moved from minnesota to los angeles in her early 20s with dreams of becoming a model and actor. She didn't see a whole lot of success in her career. She had a few modeling campaigns, but not really the spotlight she was looking for. And she began to develop a cocaine problem, which for me, anytime you take cocaine, it's a problem, but maybe that's just my opinion. Isn't another word for that addiction? And her brother goes back saying she did too much cocaine, to which again, I'm like, how much is too much cocaine? At what point when you're doing cocaine, do you stop and say, oh, maybe that was one snort too many? Yeah. I agree. I've never done cocaine, so I don't know, but I'm pretty sure you're right. Now, Phil seemed to think that she would help him rise in status, having a beautiful woman on his arm, this aspiring model. Apparently, she had dated some people in Hollywood circles, which he thought, again, would help raise his status. And she thought that she could piggyback off of his career and sort of create her own and really get that celebrity she was looking for. At this point, when they met, where was he at in his career? Was he, I know you said he was with the grand. But eventually he does move on to SNL. He does move on to news radio. Is that around this time? That's around this time. It's not there yet. So they met before SNL. And then when they were together is in 1986 is where he got his SNL gig and they moved to New York together. A quote from Phil says that as an actor, I felt I couldn't compete. I wasn't as cute as the leading man. I wasn't as brilliant as Robin Williams. The one thing I could do was voices and impersonations and weird characters. And there was really no call for that except on Saturday Night Live. In 1986, he joined Saturday Night Live in the same season as John Lovitz and Dana Carvey and performed with the show for eight seasons, which for Saturday Night Live, that's a really long run with the show. In 1986, it was almost a rebirth for SNL as it was sort of in a decline before that. So having Phil on the show, Dana Carvey, John Lovitz, they really breathed new life into the show. I love the church lady. Dana Carvey's character, the church lady, was <laughs> Crack me up. I love everything Dana Carvey. And it's funny because when I, so because of my age, the first thing that I saw of Dana Carvey was this movie, The Master of Disguise. And I was kind of thinking, how is this brilliant actor doing this movie? And it was afterwards that I realized the rest of his career and how amazing he is. But back to Phil Hartman. <laughs> Correct. So, <laughs> His characters included Johnny Cash, Frank Sinatra, televangelist Jim Baker, Ed McMahon, former President Ronald Reagan, but his most famous impression was of Bill Clinton. His career was continuing to take off, and in 1987, he and Bryn married, taking up residence in a Manhattan apartment and beginning a bi-coastal lifestyle. In 1988, they welcomed their son Sean into the world. And going back to his second wife, so over time, he and his second wife had really become friends after the 
marriage, and he had called to tell her about the birth and how happy he was to be a father. Lisa sent the family a card expressing how happy she was for them and joking about, if you ever need a babysitter, you can call me. But she received an, what she deemed odd response. What she got back was a two-page letter from Bryn that included a death threat saying that if she ever came near her family, she would be very, very sorry. So Lisa called Phil a little, again, shocked by this response she received, and his response to her was, you should have seen what she wanted to send you. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Which is never something good to hear. So Lisa really broke off contact at that point and didn't end up speaking to Phil for years after that. Now, Bryn would often visit the SNL set, and it seemed like she was trying to stand out and get a spot on the show. So she would wear flashy clothes or flirt with the writers. Apparently, she would like sit in their lap and play with their hair and all these flirty things. And people really felt that it was an effort on her part to try to boost her career and get a spot on SNL. And really inappropriate and sad. Yeah. Yeah, to kind of do that. There were a couple interviews that I saw too where Phil had brought Bryn with him for interviews. And every time you see it, it's really apparent that she's pushing him to help push her into a career of some sort. And it's just not going anywhere. There's there's nothing. She's played a few roles here and there, but it's really not taking off for her at all. In 1989, Phil won an Emmy for his writing work on SNL. And in 1991, he began working as a voice actor on The Simpsons playing, I think his most famous role was Troy McClure. McClure, the the B-class actor, where he's always, you may have seen me in, and lists off all the things you might have seen him in. And now that we have Disney+, Plus, this is not a commercial for Disney+, Plus, not that they need one, but... <laughs> We started re-watching The Simpsons because since we don't have regular cable. With more fame came more demanding schedules as he was juggling SNL, The Simpsons, as well as commercials and talk show appearances. In 1992, Bryn and Phil welcomed their daughter, Bergen, into the world. Greg Omdahl, Bryn's brother, describes them both as wonderful, loving parents, but some would say that Phil liked the idea of fatherhood more than really putting in the work of a father. And he was also very into his career. He was very motivated to really make a name for himself. He loved working and he was constantly working. And he'd finally, his career had taken off. I mean, he was putting in all that work in the groundlings and then, but now he was starting to get recognized for the work that he's doing. Yeah. And I believe when he started with SNL, he was around 38, somewhere in there. It wasn't as if his career started taking off when he was really young. It was when he was a little bit older and he was finally reaping the benefits, like you said, of all the work he had put in. Bryn's resentment towards Phil continued to grow. She had come to LA to be a model and an actor, and it was his career that was taking off and he was the one in the spotlight while she was home with the kids. Besides his work schedule, he was spending more and more time away from home, often on his boat or plane, going off to Catalina Island and almost taking off days but not with his family. So that's almost the recluse part that his second wife talked about, where she was married to like two different people, the celebrity and the recluse. Exactly. And which we'll get to this a little bit too in sort of their patterns. But what some people noticed as Phil's pattern in previous relationships was that at some point, he would start to withdraw and really close off emotionally, and that would be sort of when the relationship ended. It was somewhat well known that they were struggling as a couple, and they were fighting often and being overheard even on the set of SNL. In 1994, Hartman left SNL and his family moved back to the West Coast permanently. He told People Magazine in a 1995 interview that the rejection and backstabbing could be painful, but the hardest thing was competing against your friends for airtime, and that, of course, was 
talking about SNL, which I never thought about that. But I guess they are sort of all competing against each other at the same time. I would imagine because it's a skit variety show. So it's whose skit is the funniest, which one's going to go to air. Despite leaving SNL, Hartman continued to focus on his career and the marriage continued to decline. Bryn had landed some minor roles here and there, but again, for the most part, was a stay-at-home mom and her drug problem continued. Along with Zoloft that she was prescribed, she was an avid cocaine user and had been in and out of rehab. I'm not sure the cocaine is doing much benefit for the Zoloft. No. I mean, the bottom line is Zoloft's for depression and you're using cocaine. So that's not really going to help. Yeah, I've never seen a study done on it. Like, what are the effects of cocaine when you're on Zoloft? But I can't imagine that it's a good mix. In an effort to repair the marriage, the couple had been seeing a counselor and they had both told family that it had been helping. On the night of May 27th in 1998, Bryn went out for drinks at Buca de Bippo with friend Christine Zander, who was a supervising producer with NBC. Christine says that she was in a good frame of mind, didn't really talk about any problems and that they had made plans to see each other the following weekend. She left and ended up at her ex's and was at this point her friend Ron Douglas's house around 10.15 in the evening. According to Ron, they had a few beers, Bryn complained about Phil, and left around 12.45 a.m. At 3.45, Ron was awoken by a pounding on the door and it was Bryn. When he answered the door, she said, I killed Phil and I don't know why. He didn't believe her at first and she made a call to another friend confessing again to the murder, staying at Ron's house. While still with Ron, a gun fell out of her purse between them, and that's when he realized, oh my gosh, she could not be kidding, and maybe she really killed him. He took the gun and put it in the trunk of his car, and they drove separately back to the Hartman home, where they found Phil dead lying in the bed. So when she's over at Ron's house after she killed Phil, where were the kids? This entire time, the kids were in the home. Once Ron saw Phil's body, he stepped into the hallway to call 911 and Bryn locked herself in the bedroom with Phil. Neighbors had also called the police reporting shots fired. By 6 a.m., the street was swarming with police, and as they approached the front door, nine-year-old Sean was fleeing the home. He was taken to safety, and as police carried six-year-old Bergen away, a final shot rang out. Police gained entrance to the bedroom and found Phil and Bryn both dead. Upon autopsy, it was found that Bryn had a blood alcohol content of 0.12, along with cocaine and Zoloft in her system. There were no signs of a struggle, suggesting Bryn had shot Phil in his sleep. Some friends close to the couple said that they had a pattern where Bryn would get amped up for attention and start fights, and Phil would push it even further, and then he would withdraw completely, sometimes even going to sleep. Stephen Small, a close friend of Phil, also said that he made it clear recently to Bryn that if she continued to use, he would take away the kids. So the thought now is, is that what happened? Did they get into some sort of argument and Phil said, if you're using again, if you're drinking again, I'm going to take the kids, and she got so upset that she shot him. We're really still looking for a motive. And since she killed herself, we don't really know why. Well, and the fact is, if she's using cocaine, which sounds like she had a habit for years, and that messes you up, then you throw the Zoloft, let's throw a little alcohol on the fire, and yeah, she's not going to be thinking clearly. Now, both guns had been purchased years prior due to Bryn feeling unsafe in their California home with Phil being away so much. Some friends, including John Lovitz, had blamed Andy Dick because they think that he caused a relapse for Bryn a few months prior. Apparently, they were at a party together towards 
towards the end of 97 and she had asked him for cocaine and he had given her some, but he says, well, at that point she had already relapsed and was using drugs besides the fact that it was months prior. So Andy denies being the cause of any of this, of course, which I agree. If he, So he gave her some cocaine six months prior. That doesn't make him responsible for what she did. Doesn't help. Well, no. But if she was already relapsed at that point, obviously if she was openly asking for cocaine, it wasn't as if he was the only person that knew that she was using. Again, she had been in and out of rehab for months, even years. And why would you have firearms in a home with somebody that was that unstable? That blows my mind a little bit. That's true. <laughs> I'm not going to deny you there. And relapse doesn't occur the moment you pick up your drug of choice. You know, it, it can occur months, years even before you even pick up. It's your thinking. It's your thought process. It's the things that you're doing. Are you going to parties where you know there's going to be drugs and alcohol knowing you're not really secure in your sobriety and putting yourself at risk? So it sounds like she was on that path and then she succumbed to her addiction again. And again, she's taking Zoloft. She's using cocaine. She's drinking alcohol. Her marriage is deteriorating. Her career is never gotten out of the toilet. And so all of those emotions and feelings together culminated in this murder. My two cents. Take it or leave it. (laughs) (laughs) So out of all this, you know, really all there is is tragedy. And the kids, they went to live with Bryn's sister, which had been the couple's wish before any of this had happened. But there's really no silver lining out of this. It's just a tragic situation that took somebody out of this world and two people out of this world. And it's just sad. Yeah, that's a good good description of this story. It's sad. It is. You see what addiction does and you see how it tore this family apart. But it also sounds like Two, even if you take the addiction out of the scenario, you still had two people, one that was hyper-focused on his career, because again, he had worked very hard for it, and he was really focused on that, and another person who wanted a career and was basically in the role of stay-at-home mom, that she didn't fulfill her dreams. And like I think you said, her brother said, he liked the idea of fatherhood, but actually putting in the work of fatherhood, he really couldn't do because he wasn't present. So there's a lot of just that. That alone can lead to a lot of animosity. I think not to say that my marriage is the best marriage, anything like that at all. But I think that my husband and I have been very honest with each other from the beginning that if we're committed to a marriage, that doesn't mean that we can take it for granted. And it doesn't mean that we don't have to work at it. I think a lot of people, once they get into a marriage, they kind of figure, oh, well, I'm married. Um, I can act the way any way that I want and I'll still be married because that person is committed to me. And that's not the case. You have to go in every day and really think about how to treat the other person and what each person is bringing to that relationship. Correct. So for me, my life tip for this episode would be it takes work. Happiness isn't guaranteed in a relationship. It takes two parties that are willing to work. That is my criminal discourse life tip. Along with, if you have somebody with an addiction, do not keep firearms in your home. Agreed. Yeah. I still, I didn't even think about that until I was just reading this. But, and especially with, I don't know, it's just crazy to me that there were multiple guns in the home. Do we have any other life tips? You can edit some of that out. I'm so just baffled by it. I'm just baffled. Like why? Like he had to know, especially like there was a, I think it was in one of the People magazine articles, which I'll have everything in the show notes of of where I got information. But apparently there had been an incident a few weeks prior where she had struck Bergen, the six-year-old, when she was in sort of an alcoholic rage and which brought on the whole conversation 
conversation. If you're getting back into your addiction, I'm going to take the kids from you. So if you had somebody with that violent tendency and that's in and out of this addiction, the fact that there were weapons, it just, again, and I'm not somebody that's, you know, completely anti-gun or anti-protect yourself, anything like that. I mean, I own a gun and it's in my home. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening to us today. If you haven't yet, please visit us at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com and you can find our show notes for all of our episodes, all of our previous episodes. And also there's a spot for you to be able to contact us if you have any case ideas you'd like us to cover. If you have any feedback for us, please give it because so far we've got nothing. We hear crickets. (laughs) (laughs) Really, we do. Any suggestions, anything at all. (laughs) Thank you all for tuning in. Like Maddie said, of course, you can find us on iTunes, Google, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Tuned In, iHeartRadio, and maybe someday Pandora. So as always, everyone, please take care of yourselves. And remember, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle that is needed to solve a crime. So until next time, guys, be safe, but also be kind. Bye. Bye. Bye.